Just grab your Bibles, make your way to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 5 once again this week. Uh, we're looking at the same passage we looked at last week as Jesus performs two different miracles. And uh, we're spending time looking not only at who we are in this situation and how we might respond or react to situations, but this morning we're turning our attention to who God is in these situations. Uh, we saw last week we can perceive things through a very limited view. Our perspective on life and our, the way we see things in life is flawed because we all have this sinful nature. So because of that, when things arise in life, we can tend to lose hope. We can look at the obvious. We can limit God even in those situations through our prayer and our faith. But as children of God, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible now defines us in a new identity. Uh, and we are to have a new view on life. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to keep step with the Spirit. We are to walk or live this life as Jesus walked and lived this life. But in order to do that, we're going to have to change our perspective on things. We're going to have to understand who God is and who we are not. Uh, what I want us to do this morning is hopefully give us a spiritual LASIK eye surgery uh, to begin looking at life through the view of the way God would do it. And maybe just some encouragement that we are loved by such a great and mighty God. Again, we're in Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 42. And the word of the Lord says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Verse 35, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that you have sent your son to live a life that we couldn't and to die in our place to take our punishment for our sin. We're so thankful that 
he rose from the grave to show that he has the power over death, the authority to grant forgiveness and give us eternal life. And Father, we read through your word that you are a great mighty God and nothing is impossible with you. But Lord, you know that we have our own limitations. And so forgive us when we put those limitations upon you. Lord, I come before you now as your servant, and I ask that you just use me as your instrument of righteousness, that your spirit would speak through me, that your word would come alive and living and active in our life, that our hearts would be transformed by who you are and by the power of your word. We come before you and we ask for forgiveness where we have failed you, where we have lived outside of your will, outside of your ways. But Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, your kindness. We also thank for your discipline, those times where you discipline us because we're your children, we belong to you. And Father, in this moment, I just pray again that your word comes living and active this morning, that we be transformed by your power. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as their God, does not know your son as their Savior, has not found forgiveness for their sins, and has not promised eternal life at this moment, Lord, I pray your spirit begins working on their heart that today would be the day of their salvation. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is ready to listen and learn. And pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're doing this passage, and one thing I talk about, about changing our perspective. The Bible commands us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, that we are to be imitators of Christ and imitators of God as beloved children. The thing about that is it's difficult in this life You know, when we go about life, there's a lot of things that can bombard our schedules. Life can get busy. Life can get hectic. People get sick. Sometimes there's a lot to get done, and there's not enough time to do it. I remember when I first started in ministry, I was a youth pastor. And you have to be kind of crazy to go into youth ministry, uh, let alone stay in youth ministry. But you just got to have the right heart. And I'm so thankful for Jason, our youth pastor, and what he brings to the table and how much he loves our kids. But we came across on one particular weekend... It was my first time being a full-time youth pastor, and on that particular weekend, there was a lot of things going on. First off, we were having a middle school lock-in. Now, I'm just going to tell you now, I'm never going to tell Jason to do a lock-in because I believe they're of the devil, Um, but we had a middle school lock-in. Middle schoolers locked in with them in a building for like 12 hours, and it was going to be a huge event. We had invited the entire middle school to come out. I didn't know what to really expect. But we were planning, we were getting all the activities together, I was putting together the schedule for the evening, and I had a rule when I did lock-ins, if I don't get to sleep, you don't get to sleep. So if I'm up, you're up, because most of you all know I'm not a night person at all, and this was before I started drinking coffee. But we had this lock-in going on, it was also the same weekend, the lock-in was going to be on Friday night, the same weekend on Saturday, Jamie's twin brother Drew was going to graduate from SBU, and so we were going to have her whole family over on that Saturday, and we're going to have a grill out, and we're going to have food, and we're going to have a good time, and family and friends come over. It was also the same weekend that Jamie and her twin brother Drew were going to turn 22. It was their birthday weekend, and so I made her feel special. I had, a, I had the youth or the middle schoolers sing to her happy birthday at the lock-in. Uh, we had about 100 kids show up. I remember that, and I was just completely exhausted, um, but we had 100 kids to hear the gospel, and to have that opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It was also the same weekend on that Sunday that we were going to be honoring the seniors who were graduating that year with a senior breakfast. A lot of my plate that weekend. 
I will confess at this moment some things got overlooked or forgotten. I did not forget my wife's birthday. I did not forget we had family coming over. I did not forget about the middle school lock-in, but I kind of forgot about those seniors. And this was like a tradition at the church where they had a senior breakfast and they recognized them in the service. And so I made calls at one point in time, but I never checked back in. And after being up for 36 straight hours on Saturday, it was the last thing on my mind to call parents to see if they're going to bring in food or be someone there to cook this breakfast for the seniors. And so I kind of overlooked it. I didn't quite remember it. That sounds better than saying you forgot it, but that's what I did. I forgot about it. It's an important weekend for these teenagers who are graduating high school and getting ready to go on to the next step of life. And I think we all at times forget things, right? We may put it in our calendar, we may put it in our phone, we may have a planner that you carry around with you, but even though we have all these gadgets and gadgets, we forget things. And here's what I want to bring up is God does not. God remembers. Unlike us, there aren't too many things for our God to take control over and to remember what needs to be done. Our God never says, oops, I forgot about your prayer. Oops, I forgot you were going through this situation. Or oops, I forgot that you were dealing with this disease. What we see in our passage is our God remembers the work. Look here in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And this is a drastic situation. We have to remember, this isn't a, a story. This is an actual event that happened in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, his 12-year-old daughter was dying. But then someone in the crowd, this woman, reaches out and touches Jesus. She needed Jesus right then and there, so he stops, and he stops to handle the situation. Even though Jairus' daughter was on her deathbed, Jesus stops to deal with someone that was in need of him to treat her. He didn't forget what was going on, as we see here in verse 36. He didn't forget that there was another child that needed him. No matter what was going on in the world, we have to remember that God remembers When there's famine and there's war and there's disease and maybe even peace, God never forgets you. He doesn't forget what you're going through. He doesn't forget the things your family is going through or the things you're worried about, the things you're anxious about. He doesn't forget what's going to happen this week in your life. God remembers the work. And we may remember big things. We remember birthdays and Hopefully we remember our anniversaries because that's always a good thing to do. We remember when it's time to go to bed and it's dinner time. But a lot of times we can forget the small things. We can overlook the small things. We can forget that the trash needs to go out the night before. Forget that the dogs need to be fed or the dishes need to be done. Or We just forget things at times. We are forgetful people. And what we can learn in our life is sometimes the little things can add up to big things. Realizing who we are, we must realize that we are made in the image of God. But God is not made in our image. God doesn't work like us. God remembers the big things. He remembers the little things. In the midst of a crazy day, God would remember if he fed the dog. We get going in our day and we have to ask. I don't know if you ever ask this when you get going in your day. What am I doing? Where am I going? What, what was I looking for? I do that when I walk from downstairs, from upstairs to downstairs. What do I come down here again for? God does not forget In this crazy and hectic world surrounded by a million things, 
every day that bombard our life. Again, if, whether we make honey-do lists or put them in our calendar, there's going to be things that we forget, things that get misplaced. But we need to be thankful that God doesn't run this world and he doesn't run our lives like Bruce Almighty. Remember the scene where Bruce Almighty is answering the prayers of all the emails and he just types, types in yes and sends them to them all? That's not what God does. God is a very intimate God. He is a relational God. He's not a God who is far off that can't be reached or spoken to. But we have to remember, you know, we're not, we're not God. So we are going to forget things. We are going to get frustrated, much like the disciples were probably frustrated in this moment. We're going to feel like our life is just being swamped with stuff. Some of us sit here right now, and in the back of our mind, we're already thinking about what's going to happen this afternoon or what we're going to have for lunch or what's going to go on this next week because we forget to be in the moment. And Jesus gives us these words from the Gospel of Matthew, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's almost as if Jesus knew that we are going to have the Internet and computer and cell phones and all these things that people could get in touch with us and tell us the things that we have to get done. Well, you know, he did. But he knew that we're going to get anxious. We're going to worry, which is going to cause us to forget. So he gives us just be in the moment. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is how we don't get overwhelmed. This is how we don't forget about the things of life. It's just to be in the moment. God doesn't forget about us. He remembers what is going on in our life, even if there's a war going across on the other side of the world. He remembers the things that we're struggling with, even if there are families dying of famine and hunger. Just because our problems don't make the evening news or the headlines of the paper, God knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's going on in all of our lives. He knows us intimately. He knows us so much, he knows the hairs on our head, and he knows when they're out of place. Jesus didn't forget Jairus' daughter. He was just living in the moment. He knows what we need today. He knows what we're going to need tomorrow. He knows what we're going to need for the rest of our life. Because the Bible tells us we have been marked since the beginning of time as someone God remembers. Because he created you. And the greatest image of God remembering you is through Jesus Christ on the cross. The only reason he was there is because he remembered you. He remembered me and our sin. And even in the midst of all that pain and all that suffering, we were on his mind. He loves us that much. Turning back to our passage, verse 32 through 34. And he, this is Jesus, looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is actually an incredible event here in Mark chapter 5. You have Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. He would have been a religious elite. And now we have this woman who's had this illness, this bleeding for 12 years. And here's the thing. Because of the word of God, she wasn't even supposed to be in this situation. She wasn't even supposed to be in the midst of this crowd. She was deemed unclean. Yet she comes to Jesus, and we find Jesus in the midst of heading to Jairus' house as his daughter is dying, that Jesus stops, he remembers, and he also tells us that God remains for us. 
or read scripture, there are times I like to tell myself that, you know, if I was a disciple, if I were in their shoes or sandals, I would have gotten it a lot better than they had. I would have, I would have understood something is happening here that I don't fully understand what is going on. I, I would think that, you know, being around Jesus, that I would have understood, okay, he doesn't just stop for anything. He always has intention. And we know that throughout the Gospels, even up to this point, this is an early stage of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was always surrounded by large crowds. People were just drawn to him. And here in Mark, there's this crowd of people, and it says they're thronging around him. I mean, they're, they're just on tight around him. And Jesus stops in the middle, it, the middle of it because someone touches him. And then hear the words. As he turns to this woman, verse 34, He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. What amazes me about God is that every day he is bombarded with similar situations. The Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun, but every day God remains for us. Every day God stays to listen. Every day God stays to make sure we're all right. He stays to spend time with us. Here's Jesus in this situation with Jairus' daughter, and he stops in the middle of a crowd to find out about the person who touched him. He stops in the middle of the craziness. Probably a tense situation. And then he looks at this woman who's been outcasted of society. He wasn't even supposed to be in the midst of that crowd. And the first thing he says to her is, daughter. And this is why we can know that God remains for us. Because we're his children. He is our heavenly father and we are his children. And Jesus looked at this woman and he, all he saw in her was a child of God. What amazes about me is, because, is that there are some children of God who are quite hyper, right? They're hard to control. Maybe you're one of them. And God still loves you and calls you his child. He still invites you in. As God's children, we are uniquely known by the heavenly father. Hear this from Jeremiah chapter 1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. These are words that God spoke over the prophet Jeremiah, and it was very for a specific purpose in Jeremiah's life, but it's also a truth for us that God knew us while we were in the womb. He already set us apart for something in his kingdom. And we can get even more information. If you look into Psalm 139, it re-emphasizes this truth that God knows every intimate detail about us. He is our Heavenly Father who loves us intimately. We are His children, His creation. He created us in His image. God is our Father. And here's the thing about our Father is God. Our Father God wants to hang out with us. I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your Father, but our Father, our Heavenly Father, wants to hang out with you. He is in a rush to send you off or get you out the door. Matter of fact, you look in Scripture and our God, our Father, He wants to hang out with us more. Jesus remained in this crowd to meet this child of His as God remains in this world in our lives for the same type of encounter, same type of meetings. God didn't go for the numbers or the crowd. He remained for the care of one child. I think we need to be changing our perspective when it comes to ministry. We think that ministry needs to draw in massive crowds. But you never see that in the Gospels. You never see that with Jesus. 
Jesus didn't look at the crowds like, all right, I must be being successful. Matter of fact, when the crowds went out to John the Baptist, he even condemned them. He called them to repent. Jesus would actually tell crowds to go away. As we start new ministries in this next year, as you begin in small groups and in Bible studies, let's not look to the crowd to say that that's being successful. Let's look to the spiritual maturation because that's what success is biblically. That we are being transformed when we come into the presence of God and we gather with God's people. We are becoming more like Christ. But we have to learn to remain. We have to learn to remain in the situation and know that the seeds that we're planting, they're going to grow. God is going to use his spirit to work those things. And it's going to get hard. It's going to get frustrating. There's going to be times we might have doubts and we might lose hope like the individuals in this passage. But if we remain the ministry will get stronger, and we will remain faithful. Look in verse 30 with me. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? God not only remembers, God not only remains, but God realizes our touch. What an incredible promise from the word of God that he realizes every need that we have. When I first started college, I went to Western Illinois University. Uh, it's in Macomb, Illinois. <clears throat> a very large university. It's a state university and beautiful campus. Every year in the fall, thousands upon thousands of students would arrive in Macomb and on the campus. And students from all over the world. And I can remember my first couple years at Western, and it wasn't Western's fault, that I just felt like a face in the crowd. I didn't feel like anybody actually knew me. I mean, we had a, there were people there that we had some similarities. We weren't exactly the same, but I felt like a number. Again, not because the university did anything wrong. It's just there were so many people, all carrying backpacks, all trying to get to a classroom. I think sometimes we can do that with God. Sometimes we can look out into the world and we see all the chaos, all the things going on. You may even sit in this room and you see all these people. And we can think that, oh, well, you know, I'm really insignificant. That I'm just another number. I'm just another person who's breathing. But God knows us. We may, feel, may not feel like we're making any difference or it may not even matter if we're here tomorrow or the next day or the next year, but know this, it matters to God. It matters to God. It matters to God who you are. It matters to God what you do with your life, what I do with my life. Here we find this woman in this passage. She's been struggling. Her disease was most likely feeling, making her feel that nobody cared. Nobody was there for her. Nobody noticed. She was just another speck on this earth. But then she hears of Jesus, this great man. She's heard the reports of what he's been able to do. And she has this spark of faith. And in that moment, she finds out she wasn't just another face in the crowd. She wasn't another, just another individual. She wasn't a person coming before God, like sometimes when we go and we wait for a doctor. I hate doctor visits. If you're in the medical field, it's nothing against you. I just, I don't like going to the doctor. Um... And when I was in eighth grade, uh, I was a big comic book collector. And so you say, well, Pastor Mike's a dork. Uh, well, those comics are making millions and billions of dollars in movies and TV shows. So 
do whatever you want with it. But anyway, eighth grade, couldn't, couldn't drive, obviously. But it must have been like Thanksgiving break or Christmas break because uh, I wasn't at school. And I remember waking up in the morning, and I was going to get on my bike, and I'm going to ride to the comic book store. And so it was cold. I got all bundled up, and I started riding to the comic book store to go see if any of the comics that I was collecting and reading had shown up. And sure enough, some had. And so I bought them, and the, the guy would always put them in this little paper bag. And so he put it in. And that, the problem with that, if, if you're wherever a comic book collector, then you know that you didn't want your comics to get bent because they would lose its value. And so I, I developed a way where I could ride my bike, even though the wind would be blowing, that I would put the bag in my mouth and put the comic books on my, like, laying on my chest so when the wind blew, they wouldn't bend or, or, do, or wrinkle or anything like that. The problem with that, particularly in the winter, is when you got a piece of paper in your mouth, if you want to try it, go ahead. For a long period of time and you're, and you're going into the wind, your mouth tends to dry out, particularly your lips. And so I, when I finally got home, I put the bike in the garage, it's a detached garage, and then I pulled the bag from my mouth. Instant blood. It was cold, which cold makes anything worse that is painful. So I start freaking out. I look, make sure there's no blood on the comics. And then I went to go close our garage door. And I remember the garage door, uh, you had to close it this way. Uh, and so you had to push it open and you close it. And the doorknob was about a half an inch away from the frame, so closer than what it should be. So I'm cold, my lips bleeding. I wanted to get inside with my comics. And I go to close the door, which had to be closed with force because it was really stiff and tight. So I go to close the door, and I notice another instant ounce of pain as my finger is stuck in the door. Now, what do you do when your finger gets stuck in something? Natural reaction is pull it out. Well, immediately I start feeling a nice pulsing, and my, my finger, my middle finger, uh, starts to get warm. And so I know there's blood happening because I, I, I can hear it dripping on the ground. So I go inside, put my comics away so no blood can get on the comics. That's the most important thing. I go in the bathroom, wash my hand out, knowing if I look at my finger, I'm probably going to freak out even more. So I grab the only piece of cloth I could, which was a white washcloth. And I put that on my finger and go to call my dad. Now, if you know white and blood do not go well together. So I'm waiting for my dad, so we've got to go to the doctor. I did something to my finger. I don't even want to look at it, but this white washcloth is now almost fully pinkish red. So we get to the doctor's office, and this is probably why I don't like going to the doctor. I come in. I'm holding my finger, making sure they know I'm not, you know, giving them the bird or anything like that. And they see this washcloth covered in blood. Blood is starting to come down my, heart, my arm. I'm thinking, if, if you can die from a finger wound by bleeding out, then this is probably what's going to happen. So we get to the, the counter. The lady at the counter sees me, sees my hand bleeding, and she says, here, fill out these papers. So we go fill them out, we place them out on the counter, and so we're stuck in this waiting room. Felt like an eternity. I didn't understand. They could obviously see I was bleeding. I had blood coming down. The washcloth had no white left on it. Finally, they called my name back. Me and my dad go back to the second waiting room. That's what I call it. It's just a smaller waiting room, a little more private. And... The nurse takes back, looks at me, sees I'm gushing and blushing, says, oh, the doctor will be with you shortly. She walks out. About 15 minutes later, another nurse comes in and says, oh, my goodness, we better get the doctor. She walks out. Another 15 minutes, finally the doctor comes in, sees what happened, and since you all want to know, they had to scrape my fingernail off, but uh, yeah. 
I think sometimes we can feel that way with God. That we're just kind of in a waiting room. And yeah, we are called to wait and be still and know that he is God. But God realizes our touch. When it comes to our relationship with God, we're not going to a doctor's office. We're not being stuck in a waiting room. Our God knows us intimately. He knows our touch. He knows our needs. He knows when we are in pain. He knows when we have sorrow. He knows when we're dealing with diseases and infections because he knows us. And the Bible over and over again tells us that God cares deeply for us. You're not overlooked. You're not being ignored. You're not forgotten. But we, as we saw last week, we can look at the obvious. We begin to lose hope. But the Bible tells us God knows exactly what's going on in our lives. I bring this up because sometimes the message of the world is that you should be different. But the Bible says God already made you different. He made you unique. He made you like no other person on this planet. There's things that you do better than some people, and some people do better than you, but God knows you intimately. The Bible lets us know that we have had God's attention from the very beginning. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything, you know what he created for? He created for people to be made in his image. And from the very beginning, God knew that you and I would need a Savior. He already had everything planned out. And so when we come in even to our darkest hour, we think no one sees us, no one even knows us. We feel like maybe this woman in a crowd that everyone's overlooking, we have to remember that God knows who we are. God knows how we look. God knows what we are thinking about. Again, God knows the hairs or lack thereof on your head. Why is that important? Why is it important to know that Jesus and God, they remember, they remain, they realize why should we care even about that? Do you notice it was just the smallest portion of Jesus' garment that changed the woman? Changed her life forever? The smallest portion of Jesus Christ is enough to change our lives in a tremendous way. Just the slightest touch from Jesus can change our hearts so we can become more like him. Verse 27 through 29. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For he said, if, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. What an amazing thing that just the slightest touch to know that Jesus' robe is sufficient. Here's this woman. She's been searching for 12 years. She's been going to doctors and physicians. She's been seeking after all the cure. She had spent every penny that she had, and nothing worked. Yet she hears this report about this man named Jesus, and something in her heart triggers where she came to this belief, you know, if I can just get close enough just to touch his clothes, I'll be healed. 
She didn't think that I, I've got to go and I've got to look him in the eye. I've got to have some sort of conversation with him. I've got to stand by him. I could just touch a portion of his clothes. See, this woman in this moment knew that whatever Jesus had, it would work for her. And I think we need to realize that too. I say because we often we want the walking on water experiences. We want the water to wine. We want the miraculous to be happening. We want extreme Jesus. But even the smallest portion of him changed our lives. A couple years ago, I got a forward in an email. If you don't remember, anybody remember forwards? Most irritating thing. It's like, now it's like Facebook. Well, copy and paste this if you want good luck. Anyways, stupid. <laughs> I did this forward. And normally when I got forwards through email, I, I would just delete them. I wouldn't look at them. But something about this one caught my eyes. So I opened it. I started to read it. And, and, and it's a story about an atheist professor. And the first day of class, this atheist professor stands upon his desk and he says, I'm going to prove to you that God does not exist. I'm going to stand here for 15 minutes, and if God truly exists, and he is an all-powerful God, then he surely can knock me off this desk. And so he went on ranting and raving for about 10 minutes, and some people in the classroom started like, wow, he's got a point. You know, if God is actually powerful, and he can actually do anything, then surely he can knock this one guy off the desk. So he got into about the last minute of his challenge, and some of the Christians in class were getting kind of a little antsy and a little squirmish and nervous, and he keeps on going, God, if you're real, all you got to do, knock me off this desk. About that time, there was a football player walking through in the hallway, heard him ranting and raving, snuck into the class, and as the seconds drew almost to 15 minutes, he went up and picked the professor up and slammed him on the ground. Professor, professor was startled. He was shaken, looking up and seeing this massive man standing over him. He said, where did you come from? Why did you do that? Football player looked at him and says, well, I heard what you're saying. God was busy, so he sent me. Here's the thing. God isn't too busy for us. So we can't be like an irritating Professor. I'm not saying we shouldn't want God's presence in our life. I'm not saying we should have the desire to be closer to him. What I'm saying is let's not put our God to the test. And let's be satisfied with what God has already given us. We can't have the power of heaven unleashed on our friends and coworkers. We might panic because that's what we want. We want the power of heaven and the kingdom of God to come and for people's lives to change and that they too would become children of God. But in Scripture, we see that if we aren't satisfied with what God has already given us, then why should we ask God to give us more? It'd be kind of like a child asking you for a piece of gum, and when you pull out your whole pack of gum, they change their mind and say, oh, I'd rather have the pack, instead of being happy with what they're getting. Are we satisfied with knowing that just the robe of Christ can change us? That when we were found in our sin, it was just the touch of Christ that brought us to our knees, and it wasn't his fist. Yet Christ didn't just give us a touch, he gave us his entire being. But it was only the touch of Christ that changed our life. It was that little touch that gave us the desire for the whole hand. So we have to be satisfied with the touch and the evidence of all of God, all around us, throughout his creation, 
so we can feel the arms of God surrounding us. Some people are kind of reluctant to answer the call of God, to accept Jesus Christ and, and that desire to be forgiven and to be given eternal life. It is only found through Christ. And some people come to this place, well, you know, I just don't deserve it. I don't belong there. That's the woman. She didn't know she deserved it. She knew she didn't belong in the crowd. But she also knew Jesus could do something that no one else could do. And Jesus freed her of her pain. And this is what God wants to do for all of us. To free us from our infection of sin and the punishment of that sin. To remove it from our life by accepting the touch and the love of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel we proclaim. That you are created for a relationship with God. That is your sole purpose in life. Is to be in a relationship with him. Everything else will fall in place. But it's your sin that's separating you from that relationship. And sometimes we think, well, if I just do this, or I just do that, or I'm just be a good person, or I'll start doing more church stuff, it doesn't work. That's you trying to work and earn your salvation. And the Bible says it's a gift. It's free. It's by God's grace. That he sent his only son to live a perfect life, to die on a cross. They placed him in a tomb. He rose three days later to show that he has the power and authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, this is why you're here. God brought you here for this. To find forgiveness. To accept God's gift and be given salvation. If you don't have Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, the Bible is very clear. God wanted it to be very plain and simple. If you're not found in Christ, then when this life is over, you'll go to a place the Bible defines as hell. But that's not God's plan for your life. His will is that you accept Jesus and be saved. So if you're here this morning and you need to come down, you can just come and sit in the front row. I'll come and sit by you and just say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. We'll talk about it. We'll celebrate it. I promise you there will not be a person in this room who will not be excited for you. But maybe you're here and this is the message you need to hear. I know there's a lot of people going through difficult times. Remember that God will never leave you or forsake you. And nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. And maybe you just need to have that reassurance. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask Nick and Bridget to come up and lead us. This is our time of invitation. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you, Lord, that you know who we are. You know what we're going through. You know the battles we face, Lord, and that your word reminds us over and over again the battle isn't ours. The battle belongs to you. So help us to trust you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Forgive us if we failed you in any way, Lord. And if there's someone here this morning that your spirit's been stirring their heart to come down and find salvation in Jesus Christ, your son. Lord, I pray your spirit just gives them the courage to come down and find a seat. Your word says that the heavens erupt when one person comes to Christ. Be within this time. Let your kingdom and will continue to be done. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.